Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, we're going to get a little extra bang for our buck today, and Kathy is going to read to you from Galatians chapter 5. All right, here we go. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through my spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that no one who is troubling you, um, you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In 2013, Princeton conducted a survey where they asked a group of people to recall something unethical that they had done in their life. And when they did so, those people, that group of people, reported feeling as if they actually weighed more than when they recalled something ethical they had done. That in this instance, that metaphor of being weighed down by guilt is actually true, or at least partially true, right? It's no wonder that we talk about guilt then as feeling a burden of guilt or the weight of guilt. In this study, they found that we actually feel heavier when we feel guilty. It's a load we must bear something we're weighed down by. And, and Paul understands this too. When he speaks of slavery, the slavery of legalism in this book of Galatians here, he calls it a yoke in verse 1, something that we bear, a weight, a burden. Guilt produces a weight upon us. And that's a problem. What do we do about that? If you've ever done something wrong, right, especially to someone you love, you know what I'm talking about. You know that feeling, that feeling of weight. And if you're thinking of an instance right now, you're probably feeling a little bit heavier right now in your seats right now. But you know what that's like, that sinking feeling. You know what guilt feels like, and we've all felt that burden. And people, people deal with this sense of guilt in a number of ways. Right? People deal with this in any sort of ways. Some people, they try to cope with the feelings. They try to deaden it with different substances or abusive relationships. Others try to atone for them in some 
sort of twisted, self-imagined way of justice, paying a contrived penance for their deeds. They, maybe they cheated on their spouse, so they buy her a diamond bracelet as if that can atone for it. They feel guilty about how they treated their boss at work, so maybe they give a 20 to the panhandler on the way home. They make up their own justice system in order to alleviate that sense of guilt or that weight on their part. Oh, if I simply just do more good than bad, it'll be okay somehow. And as Christians, we do the same thing, don't we? We recognize sin in our life. We feel guilt for something, guilt for wrongdoing that we've done, something that we've done wrong, or even just guilt for not living up to what we have conceived as the good Christian life. And we try to atone for it. We try to atone for it. Life becomes this religious system where our happiness right, or because we're Christians, we'll call it blessings, our blessings are directly proportional to how good a Christian we think we are being. We lie to our boss, well, it makes sense that there was extra traffic on the way home then, right? That's how God works. We want our kids to do well in school, then I'm going to turn on the Christian radio, Air One, or K-Love, just at least until they start asking for money, then I'll turn it down a little bit. I know you've all done it. We think God's view of us depends upon what we do. In that way, we think God is like us because we treat other people in our life based upon how good a friend they are or how poor a friend they are. And we think that must be how God views us based on our good deeds. We assume that God must be like us, but the Bible is very clear. God is not like us. Paul has been telling us this is not so. He's, he is asking the Galatians, why do you guys keep thinking this way? Why do you keep going back to this form of slavery? God has one view towards his children. And it's only love. It's only love and delight. I'm so encouraged by passages like Psalm 147 that tells us God delights in us. Or Zephaniah 3.17, where it says, The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I don't know if you've ever imagined God the Father singing over you. It's kind of an interesting image. I'm sure he's a good singer too. But Paul knows the heart of the Galatians were drawn to live and think that God's love for them and even their own salvation was somehow tied to what they could do for themselves, somehow correlated to their effort. And just like the Christians in Galatia, our hearts can easily be drawn to that too, right? We can easily be drawn to that thinking that God's love for us and even our salvation is somehow tied to our own effort somehow correlated to how good a Christian we are. And that's why this book of Galatians was written. Throughout Paul's letter, he's constantly painting these two contrasting portraits of what it's like to live according to grace and to live according to human effort. In chapter 4 last week, we just heard Paul use this story from Genesis, a story from Genesis as an allegory between what Christianity is meant to be 
and the system, the religious system that some were making it out to be. What Christianity is meant to be, it's meant to be lived by faith, grounded in God's promises, founded upon something that's already been accomplished, right? The cross of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate in a few weeks. And as we read this morning, an empty tomb. Contrast that against a religious system that some at this church in Galatia were making it out to be. A works-based righteousness, which involved man-made requirements for how they had to practice their faith and live their life. Rather than looking back at the cross, what was done, they were trying to point people to a life of what they had to do. It no longer about what was done, but what had to be done as a Christian. And Paul used that story we heard last week of Abram, Hagar, and Sarah to contrast the self-reliance of Jewish law and the God-dependence of grace. One places us in bondage, the other in freedom. And as we begin chapter 5 today, he reminds us not to fall back to that which we were freed from. And again, he's contrasting these two paradigms of thought. And Paul would say that these two thoughts, these two paradigms are even so different. They're, They're like two different religions. He opened this, uh, this letter with that in chapter 1. They're like, he said they're like two different religions. They're so different. One is based on grace. The other is based on rules and obligation. One, a religion of God's accomplishment. The other, a religion of human achievements. And in the first six verses of chapter 5 that Kathy just read for us, he points out what it would look like for a person to practice these two religions. From the metaphor of Genesis to the reality of life lived under the law. He starts by saying that if you accept circumcision, then Christ is of no help to you. Now, Paul, he's using one of the Jewish customs, circumcision, because that's what the Galatians, in, uh, that's what the Galatians were really hung up on. That was their kind of one thing. But in doing so, he's referring to the whole of the Jewish law. Right? And for us today, that's not so much the Jewish customs and laws, but our own idea of what a good Christian should be doing. The Galatians were looking to be justified or counted righteous, as it's rendered in verse 4, by doing good things. And that's what we do, too. We do that all the time. Looking to atone for our own sinfulness, we turn to doing the right things, the law, except That's a problem. That's a problem because we can never completely atone for our sins by ourselves. And when we try, we actually make the problem worse. That's what Paul starts out with. We actually make the problem worse. How so? Well, if we look to our good deeds, then we must be perfect in our good deeds. We must be able to do all the right things all the time. And we can't do that. It's like those eating challenges at restaurants you see on TV, where a restaurant says, if you eat this whole eight-pound burrito, your tab is paid for, right? You got to eat the whole thing, though. You can't leave one little bit of carne asada on the plate. But if you eat the whole thing, your tab is paid for. You don't owe us. If anyone's interested, you can actually go to Sarasota, Florida, Burritos Mexican Grill, and try to eat an eight-pound burrito. To give you some context, a gallon of milk weighs eight pounds. That's how big the burrito is. But if you go there and accept the Mongo Burrito Challenge, as it's called, you've got to eat the whole thing. 
you've got to eat the whole thing or you end up paying the $100 the burrito costs. If not, you pay. Once you begin, you can't turn back. And that's similar, in a weird way, to what the Judaizers were trying to accomplish here in Galatia. And Paul is saying that if you're going to follow that system, and if you say yes to circumcision, then you got to say yes to all of it. Right? You got to say yes to all of the Jewish laws, and you got to do all of them perfectly all the time. See, you might be able to eat an eight-pound burrito, but you can never be perfect, right? And that's the standard because God is perfect. It means death for both the person who thinks themselves religious and the irreligious alike. For the religious person, we think, I'm not that bad, or I'm not as bad as that person over there. And on the other end of the spectrum, the irreligious would say, well, I'm horrible. There's no way God could love me. But both views are wrong. If you look to your good deeds and you say, oh, this is how it works, okay, then you have to do it all. And we either think we can and deceive ourselves at our own goodness, or we drown in our inability to to even measure up. But grace says the opposite. Grace says, yeah, you know what? You're never going to make it, but that's okay, because we have a Savior who did, who lived a perfect life for you. God has done it for you, that which you could not do yourself. And Paul says it in verse 3, says, everyone who accepts one part of the law, that person is obligated to keep the whole of the law. For the Galatians, if you say you need to be circumcised, well, then you must not eat shellfish. You must not wear two types of fabric woven together. You must sacrifice animals constantly and bathe yourself in certain ways and let your ox eat while they work for whatever reason. And the list goes on and on and on. You know, in our, um, in our Bible reading plan, um, this, like this right here, we just finished the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we just finished it. It's the final book of the Torah. A little bit of congratulations if you made it through Deuteronomy because it is 30 plus chapters of all these laws uh, that were given. It's a, Deuteronomy is really a series of speeches given by Moses to the Israelites right when they're on the brink of entering the promised land. They had just been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They're standing on the edge of the promised land, and Moses is giving them a series of speeches. And in those speeches, he's giving them the laws that they received back at Mount Sinai 40 years earlier, and he's actually even giving them more than that. There's a few more in there that weren't back 40 years ago. It's 30-plus chapters of do's and don'ts. And there's, and in my Bible, the, the publisher has put in these different subheadings for the different groups of laws that the Jewish people must follow, right? There's laws about marriage, there's civic laws, social justice laws, there's all these laws about murder, and my Bible has those subheadings, and then there's sections that say various laws that just don't fit anywhere else. And then my Bible under that even has a subject subsection saying miscellaneous laws that don't even fit under the various laws because they're all so miscellaneous, like the one where you have to let your ox eat the grain while it's treading it out. And it's before Moses dies, right? The end of Deuteronomy ends. He's just given this speech. Moses is about to die. This is at the very end of Deuteronomy. And he has, and there's this fascinating part at the very end where 
where Moses says, he's just given them all these laws. And he says, I know you're going to fail, right? He gives them all these things that they must do and must not do. And Moses says, you know what? I know you're going to fail. He's been with them for 40 years. And in fact, he's seen God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness all across those 40 years. And yet he's seen the Israelites. What have they done in spite of God's faithfulness? They fail, they fail, they fail, they fail. And so he gets to the end and he says, you know what? I know you're not going to make it. I know you're going to fail. Moses recognizes that there's something wrong within them and within all of us. Despite our best intentions, despite our best efforts, we will always fail. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our hearts. But he doesn't leave them without hope. He doesn't leave them without hope. If you, he says, if you turn back to God, and you would have just read this on Friday, he says, he will take you. He will restore you. I know you're going to mess up. But if you turn back to God, he's going to take you in, despite all the mess ups you've had and everything. Then he says this really interesting line. It's in Deuteronomy 30. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart that you may live. He's just laid out the hundreds of laws that would set them apart from all the other nations around them, including circumcision. But, and Moses is recognizing, you know, there's nothing you can do to live rightly. Right? It's like that old adage, to err is human. There's no way your guys are going to make it. What you need is a change of heart. says, God will circumcise your heart that you may live. This is Moses writing this in the Old Testament, the last book of the Torah. And if it sounds like something you might have read in the New Testament, that's because you have. Paul carries this idea all the way from Moses forward into one of his letters where he makes the parallel that being a part of God's family is not about what you can do for yourself, but about a change of heart produced by God's own spirit. Right? Moses foresaw this through the, through the divine inspiration of God all the way back hundreds of years before Christ would come. Paul, uh, Moses recognized there's nothing you can do. You guys need a change of heart. And we have a Savior who came. Paul talks about it in Romans. That will circumcise your heart by the power of the Spirit. And we have some people in Galatians to whom this letter was written saying that the church must require circumcision. Paul says, no, no, don't. Don't go back to that. Don't submit again to that yoke of slavery. By accepting one part of the law, you are going to be obligated to it all. This is what Paul said back in chapter 3, actually, if you think back. He says, you place yourselves under the law. If we're going to rely upon our own good deeds, we end up accursed, it says in chapter 3, verse 10. How? Remember, it's all or nothing. You must rely on them completely if you're going to rely on one part of them. You must be perfect then, it says in chapter 5. By depending on our own good deeds, we place a burden on ourselves that we could never bear. And thus, we're no longer looking at Christ. We're no no longer looking to Christ to save us, but looking to ourselves. And here's what we end up doing. We end up treating Jesus like a collaborator helping those who help themselves. He's not. 
if we view him as such, then he's no help to us at all. And in a great irony, when we think like that, like Jesus as a, view him as a collaborator, we've severed ourselves from Christ, it says in verse 4. We've severed ourselves from Christ in an effort to be accepted by Christ. Christ has no purpose for us. Paul says we've fallen from grace. We usually use that term to mean that we've done something wrong. And here Paul is using it to say we've tried to do something good to undo something bad. And in, the, in doing so, we have not depended upon grace. We've fallen from it. We've tried to earn something that can never be earned. By trying to do so, we make ourselves a slave to a life of rule-keeping and good deeds, one which we will ultimately fall short. In the book of Deuteronomy, actually starts, um, Moses starts by telling the group of Israelites as they're about to enter in the promised land, the fulfillment of all these years of wanderings and promises made by God. He says, don't think it's because of your righteousness that God is doing these things because you are a stubborn people. Moses pretty much says, ever since you guys left Egypt, you guys have been complaining and stubborn, a stiff-necked people. Don't think it's because of how good you are that you've, that God is giving you this promised land, right? It's because he recognizes it's not our righteousness. There's no, we need a change of heart, right? Our heart is broken in a way that we can never fix. That is the yoke of slavery, Paul says, is upon those who do not accept God's grace by faith. And then Paul shifts. He shifts to describing life in the true, uh, life in the true gospel, life in Christ Jesus and through the Spirit in verses 5 and 6. And we've talked a lot about what life looks like as a legalist. But this morning and in this series, both, in, both this morning and in the series thus far, but what does the opposite look like? All right, if Paul is describing legalism as slavery, then the opposite is freedom. That's really the theme of this section today is freedom. Freedom. So what does it look like to live free? What is Christian freedom all about? Jesus told his followers on the Mount of Olives that whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. And our very passage today opens with these words, for freedom Christ has set you free. So what does it look like in the life of the believer? What does freedom look like in the life of the believer? So Paul goes from painting the portrait of a life under the yoke of legalism, and he shifts to describing the freed life of those in Christ Jesus in verses 5 and 6. And this, this whole passage we're in today is all about the freedom we have in Christ. And notice, look at verse 4 in your Bibles if you have them. Look at verse 4 and look at the verb used in verse 4 for those who are free. It says, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Being saved by grace means we wait for the glory of heaven. Those who place themselves under a merit system of the law must work towards heaven. That's a big difference. You're either waiting or you're working, right? But with the law acting as a mirror, 
We've talked about that before. The law acting as a mirror, showing us how sinful and messed up, showing us our broken hearts. A life that is without hope in and of itself, all we can do is wait, right? There's no way we could work towards heaven. We're going, we wait for it. We eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. There's no salvation to work for. We've already received such through faith in Christ Jesus. Our life is no longer lived trying to work our way to glory, but simply waiting for it with expectation, right? There's freedom in that. And this is what Paul is describing, the freedom in that. And in these two verses, verses five and six, he gives us the ingredients for Christian freedom. Let me read it for you, verses five and six. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. There are three things we see in here. We see faith, hope, and love. We see faith working through love to produce hope in us. As Paul opened this section by saying, we are set free he now shows us what that freedom looks like in our lives. It looks like faith working through love, producing in us a hope that does not disappoint. And these three things should sound familiar to you. Paul also used them in the letter to, his first letter to the Corinthians in a very famous passage that describes love, right? Love is patient. Oh, I got you. Love is patient. Love is... Okay, we'll stop there because... Good job. That's a little audience participation, right? And at the end of that section describing love, Paul says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, you guys are on it. That should sound familiar, faith, hope, and love. Faith, not our goodness, not in our ability to please God through works, Paul says the only thing that really counts is faith. It's not circumcision. It's not your good works. It's not who you are, what country you're from, what language you speak. It's about our faith in Christ who's, and his finished work on the cross. It's not what you do for yourselves. It's what's been done for you. That's why Paul says we wait for salvation. It's nothing we can work for. In Ephesians, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the faith that leads to freedom. Faith, hope, and hope are eagerly awaited hope of salvation. And it's important to note that the hope described here in verse 5 is not like the way we often use hope in our daily lives. We might say, well, oh, I hope to do well in this meeting coming up, or I hope I can get home on time for dinner. Right? We use hope like that, like we're just, it's not a certain thing, but the hope of scripture is a sure thing. It's a done deal. It's a sure expectation of a bright future. It's a living hope as described in 1 Peter, one that does not disappoint in Romans 5 and an anchor for our souls in Hebrews 6. Its very foundation is in God Almighty, the great unchangeable I am. You know, not too long ago, my wife asked me this question. It's a good question. What would you do if you couldn't fail? What would you do if you couldn't fail? Think about that for a minute while I take a sip. See, we can hold back from a lot of things because of a fear of failure. 
We think about the consequences if things don't pan out, right? Oh man, what's going to happen? Or gosh, what will people think if it doesn't work out? It's the uncertainty of things that keep us from so much. We, feel, we fear failure because our identities are usually tied up in that thing that we were going to risk, right? A relationship, whether it, maybe it's a job, a bank account, a reputation. But what if it didn't matter? What if success or failure didn't matter because our security, our identity was found somewhere else? Not, in, not even somewhere else, but in someone else. Not found in our job, our bank account, how well our kids are doing, our reputation, our career, our relationships. We fear failure because we, we have a, a narrow vision and think that this world is all we have, right? It's my career. It's my livelihood. We operate as ones without the eternal hope that we read about in Scripture. And you know, I was thinking about this. The the power of that question that my wife asked me, what would you do if you couldn't fail? It isn't really in getting to do something and succeeding, right? The question's not, oh, um, what would you do if you could be successful in it? It's worded in a very interesting way that hits upon our fears and our identity. It's asking, what would it be like to live without fear, really? Following Christ is freedom because of who we have our hope in, who we have our identity in. It's in who Christ is and who we are in Christ. That's what our hope is in. It's not in a job or career or the well-being of those that we love. So what does hope look like for you? What does hope look like for you? What does that freedom look like for how you decide what job to take? What school to send your kids to? Where to live or how to spend your money? And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about abusing that freedom. We're actually going to talk about that later. Paul hits that later on in this passage. But we need to remember that our hope is a sure thing, an identity thing, a God thing a hope that he is setting all things right. It's the hope of eternity, a hope that destroys insecurity and destroys fear in our life. That's the hope that we eagerly await. And here's the thing about Christian hope. It is often, not always, but it is often in stark contrast to what it seems like is immediately going on around us. Right? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it lines up. And here's what I mean. Oftentimes when we talk about hope for anything, we point to maybe current events or happenings that either confirm or build that hope. If you're a sports fan, wow, you just lost a game. You know what? I have hope, though. Look at our team. Look at you know, who we've traded for next season. I think we're going to have it. Um, I think the Padres fans have been saying that for years. That might be a different kind of hope. Or the, you heard the weatherman saying, you know, the rain's going to stop. Well, okay, I heard him say that. Then I'm uh, hoping for a sunny weekend coming up. But often in Christianity, 
we fail to see around us the hope talked about in Scripture. We fail to see it playing out before us, and thus oftentimes we live without it. And I'm not just talking about the hope of salvation or hope of life after death, but also for the kingdom of heaven to expand. There are far too many Christians who live like that just isn't true. Here's a little more audience participation for you. This one's from Matthew. Jesus told us that he will build his church and the gates of Wow, I can't believe you guys just said hell in church. Oh my gosh. Good thing there's grace, right? The gates of hell would not prevail against it. God will build his church. Not even hell can stand against it. That is a hope-filled promise for life today, right? That's our hope for today. And yet we see Christians living as if that wasn't true, don't we? living without hope that God is building his kingdom. Oh, our world is in need of restoration. Don't get me wrong. We see that very plainly. And it's hard to see culture drift far from God and nation rise up against nation. But we must remember that in the midst of all of that, we have a living hope that is an anchor for our souls, a hope that God's kingdom is expanding and will do so even when it seems like the world is against it. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that we do not mourn like the rest of the world that has no hope. Because our Savior conquered sin, death, and the devil. The tomb is empty. He is risen. Look at China. When the Christian missionaries were kicked out of China in the 1950s, everyone thought that was the end of Christianity in China. They thought, you know what? We're not sure what's going to happen now, now that all the missionaries were kicked out, and there's no way that it could thrive. But it led to the fastest church growth in the history of modern China, the underground church there. People looked around, and they looked at what they could see and said, I don't know how God's going to do this. But God did it, right? And the church grew. God's kingdom is not held back by world wars, changing politics, or the latest trends of culture on TikTok. Hell itself cannot stop the kingdom of God. But when we as Christians succumb to living without hope in God's kingdom, we can find ourselves in actually one of three places. Number one, we can compromise. We think we got to change things so Christianity is, is more approachable for the changing culture around us, and thus we compromise our message of truth. That's, this is based in fear, not in hope. Fear that, oh, our team is losing. We got to do something. God's team doesn't lose. We, we compromise. Or number two, we get combative. We forget Jesus' image of love and humility, and we feel we got to fight fire with fire. This is rooted in anger, not hope. Anger that things aren't going how I think they should be going. But God's ways are not our ways. Number three, we can retreat. We can pull back from the world and build walls around us to shield ourselves from the world. Think of the, the Amish or the Christian communes. This is rooted in pride, not hope. It's us thinking our way is better, and so we better seclude ourselves within our ivory tower in the name of protection. 
but then we lose our sense of mission that God has given us in this world. But the Christian life is not based in fear or anger or pride, but in hope, a sure hope. Okay, that was a really long tangent on hope. Back to Paul and his ingredients for Christian freedom. We have faith, hope, and the last one, love. The great love of God who from the beginning knew our need for a savior who would be able to live the perfect life that we couldn't and die the death that we should have so that we could obtain his glorious inheritance of true living, of right standing before the creator. Just like Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 9, you know what, it's not your righteousness that counts for anything. It's who God is. Faith, hope, and love provide the ingredients for a Christian life of freedom. And Paul is so fired up about about wanting this, this fledgling church in Galatia to know the freedom to which they've been called. He directs the next several verses in our passage to warning those who are bringing this false teaching into the church. In verses 7 through 12, he tells them that this false merit-based system is not from God. It's not from him who called you. Some of them even tried to claim that Paul was also preaching this same message, this one of works-based righteousness. And Paul was saying, no way, I'm not doing that. If I were doing that, then why are they persecuting me? No, Paul wasn't teaching circumcision or any other form of legalism. And Paul's worked up. He's super worked up. He even goes so, so far as to wish those who are mutilating the truth of God's gospel that they would even mutilate themselves. It's not really family-friendly content, but that's how cruel Paul views the condition that these false teachers were putting the Galatians church into. They weren't promoting salvation but they were promoting a downward spiral to bondage, to slavery, to a yoke of slavery. That isn't freedom. It's slavery. And Paul bookends our passage today like he started it with a reminder that we are free. We are free. He says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, you are called to freedom. And with these final words, he actually he adds two things in verses 13 through 15. He adds two things. One is a warning about Christian freedom. And the other, an exhortation towards love. First, his warning is really a reminder of what Christian freedom is not. He differentiates it from worldly freedom. He says, our freedom isn't a freedom to do whatever you want. Right? It's not a freedom for licentiousness or selfish living or a flagrant disregard for morality. Oh, God forgives me for whatever I do, so therefore I'm going to do whatever I want. That's not like that. No, don't be silly, Paul says. It's not the way it is. Our freedom is different. It's a freedom from sin, not a freedom to sin. And it's a sad irony that so many non-Christians think that Christianity is really just about keeping a set of rules. That that's how their view of Christianity. Oh, you're a Christian? Well, then you got to do this. You got to go to church. You probably have to read your Bible, all these things, or whatever it looks like for them. But Christianity is really about freedom. Freedom. 
freedom from the things that otherwise bind us. It's freedom from our sins, freedom from merit-based living, freedom of acceptance, freedom of forgiveness, freedom of access to God, freedom to be loved and to love in return. And it's freedom even from death. It's freedom from the weight of guilt. That's what we're called to. That's what we're set free into. It's right there in the words of the song that says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is freedom by faith, working through love, producing hope in us. Paul punctuates Christian freedom freedom by saying that when we love one another, we actually end up fulfilling the law. We do not gain acceptance through the law, but through our acceptance of Jesus. We keep the law out of a love for him. Obedience gains us nothing before God, but obedience is the fruit of a life secure in God's grace. By the spirit of God, we can live a life of love towards each other. We talked about this before, not too long ago, that our love for each other is our binding witness before the world itself. That's the fruit of a life of freedom. And next week, we're actually going to talk more about that fruit in our lives. But what we see is that our freedom affects our relationships with one another. The freedom we were called to, the freedom for which Christ set us free, produces a fruit in us that directly affects those around us. Well, like I said, we're going to hear more about that next week. You can go ahead and close your Bibles. I want to finish with a a story. You know, years ago, um, I was living in Santa Barbara, not too far from here. Santa Barbara, and I was at the beach. And at this particular beach I was at, there is a wall at the back of the beach where the boardwalk is on top. This wall is about six or maybe seven feet high. And there was a family there at the beach with uh, two sons. They're about the same age as my two youngest kids. So maybe around four, the other one maybe around seven. And these kids were, were running up the stairs and getting to the top of the wall And their dad was there at the base of the wall to catch them. So they would jump out into his arms. And the little four-year-old was just with the biggest smile on his face, running up the stairs and just running straight off the wall, not even checking to see, make sure his, his dad was ready. Just running off, you know, like full of joy and glee, no care in the world at all. It's a beautiful picture. The seven-year-old gets up and doesn't run off the wall like his little brother, but gets to the edge, right, and hesitates, looks around, right? His, his dad is right there, arms outstretched to catch him. And the seven-year-old has just even seen his little brother run, jump, dad catches, no problem. And yet the seven-year-old, who should know better, right? Knows a little more about it. Sees how high high the wall is, sees the sand down there, 
and you could just see in his face, he's thinking about, well, what if, what if my dad doesn't catch me, right? What if my, he misses me or something like that? There's hesitation. Compare that to his little brother. No hesitation whatsoever. Just running off the wall. The older kid didn't look at his dad. He's looking at the fall, right? His fear of failure about what's there. But his dad is perfectly capable of catching him, right? There's no way his dad is going to let him fall. You know, God has used that story in my life to preach sermons to me over and over and over again about my hesitancy, because I sometimes get to the edge of the wall and I don't look at who my God is, my father is. I'm looking at the fall, the sand. I think about the what ifs and I forget about who I am in Christ and who my father is. I forget that my father is never going to let me fall. He's never going to leave me or forsake me that he loves me so completely, I, can't, I won't even ever be able to understand the depth of his love for me. I want to be like that little kid, right? Just running off the wall. Just no care because I know my dad's there, right? That's who I want to be. That's how freedom, I want freedom in Christ. That's how I want the freedom to look like in my life. I don't want to look at what could happen, the what ifs in life. I want to know that who I am in Christ. I want to know who I am in Christ. I want to know the depth of my Father's love for me. That freedom. Freedom, which is peace with God. It's for freedom that we've been set free. Lord, help us to live that way, Jesus. God, help us to live free in you. Lord, help us to not look to the world around us, but look to you, to fix our eyes upon you as the author of our faith, God. Lord, give us faith. Lord, give us love. Give us hope in you, Jesus. God, we thank you that you are a perfect father. You don't treat us as our sins deserve, but you look upon us with love and with care that we will never be able to comprehend, God. But I pray that you would even just give us a taste of it, Lord. Lord, thank you for the freedom that we have in you, freedom from our sins, freedom of acceptance and forgiveness, freedom from the weight of guilt. God, because you have done the work, it's not our doing, It's what you've done for us, God. So, Lord, we we turn now to you to worship you for who you are and what you've done in our lives, Lord. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.